What you are about to hear is not 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 a podcast. <laughs> this is a global conversation recorded live in real time with real people, journalists, business leaders, academics, politicians. I think the term is a deep state. Oh dear. Investors, experts, diplomats, citizens. Coming together from around the world to share their views and ask our guests the questions. If you would like to join this conversation or hear our incredible library of past conversations, please visit our website, pm101.club, and join the fastest growing conscious community on the free internet. Thanks for being here. Enjoy, 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 enjoy the show, the show, the show, the show, the show. Hello, and welcome back to Politics and Media 101 place where we hear live and direct from people in the news in their own voices, in their own words, in long form, and where anyone who wants to can join to ask them a question, share their thoughts, or just listen. I'm Jeff Browning, and I'm grateful to you for being here. Today, we're excited to release part of a conversation, interview, and audience Q&A we had with U.S. Senator Sheldon Whitehouse of Rhode Island. Senator Whitehouse is a member of the Senate Judiciary Committee, and he's an expert not only on the Supreme Court itself, but also on how the court's decisions practically impact American politics, campaigns, the country's well-being, and our future in profound ways. The Supreme Court is supposed to be non-political, exercising independent judgment that's not beholden to any political party. So what happens when the court starts making decisions that literally shift the goalposts of political power, as it has done on voting rights, dark money, and gerrymandering? Many would agree that money plays too much of a role in American politics, especially in determining how power is divided between groups of people, between industries and citizens, or between political parties. In this conversation, we got into how that dark money is actually used, how court decisions allow it to be used that way, and even how it's crept into influencing the court itself. While the Supreme Court's supposed to be above politics, a staggering amount of money has gone into trying to use the judiciary overall to tilt the playing field in America— and keep control of power without having to win it in elections. This is extremely undemocratic and dangerous. We had a great conversation with Senator Whitehouse about what's really going on behind the curtain with dark money influence, including on the judiciary, and what it could mean for the nation going forward. We had great audience questions, and we hope you enjoy it as much as we did. As always, if you like or dislike what you hear, if you want to find out how to join us live almost every day of the week, maybe ask one of our upcoming guests a question, or hear past episodes please visit our website, pm101.live or pm101.club. They both work and will get you to the same place where you can find all that and more. Without any further ado, let's roll the tape. How's your week going? It's not like the Senate's too busy right now, is it? Yeah, we're just idling away. Not much going on. But at least we got the defense bill done, sorted out the debt limit catastrophe before it became a catastrophe. and. Um, working on trying to land build back better. Yeah, and that that is a big uh, ship to land. Uh before we get into this senator, I, I have to ask you a personal question. Uh you went to St. Paul's School, high school in New Hampshire. I went to St. Paul's School. I'm wondering if you could share a fun or important memory from your days in high school that have kind of stuck with you. Well, I was um I was sent there when I was 11. And my parents were in Africa, and the only school in the country that they were posted to um, ran out of English-speaking classes in the um, sixth grade. So um, one of my very early memories is traveling from New Hampshire to Dakar, Senegal, where I would meet my mother who had flown from Conakry, Guinea to bring me back on the last flight to uh, Guinea where we were posted. But it was quite an adventure for an 11 year old to be traveling like that. The um, airlines wanted me to wear a tag that said unaccompanied minor. It was like this big flagrant tag. And my first job was to make sure I lost that tag <laughs> so you could wander around the plane. That's that's awesome. A little bit further than my commute from Concord to Portsmouth, New Hampshire. On could wander around the airports even. 
<laughs> we changed planes in Paris and I had several hours so I could actually take a taxi into Paris and get a coffee and pretend I was more grown up than I was. Uh, pretty smart 11 year old. I'll, I'll say that. All right, Senator, I want to get into dark money in politics. We know that the Citizens United case was decided by five GOP appointed justices with three Democratic appointed justices and John Paul Stevens dissenting. It's not in question that Republicans support judges with a more permissive view on campaign finance than Democrats do. But when it comes to campaign practice, have you noticed substantive differences between how the two sides approach campaign finance? Um, Well, the biggest difference is that Democrats uh, repeatedly try to get the dark money out of politics. And Mitch McConnell insists that the Republicans line up and block any efforts to get dark money uh, out of politics. That's probably the biggest difference uh, between the two parties. Uh, And the biggest difference in uh, deployment, I would say, is that we're now seeing in recent elections for the first time, these dark money outside operations, they're called, um, actually spending more money in a congressional race than the campaigns themselves spend. It was always the campaigns that spent the most in very rare occasions where the campaign was in some kind of trouble. The party might come in and spend a lot of money for a period of time. But the idea that at the end of the campaign, you tally up the advertising spending and the biggest spenders were enormous unknown shell entities that front for special interests and that they've outdone the candidates themselves in spending is a pretty good sign of how far off the rails this has all gotten. Yeah, it has gotten off the rails. And I want to kind of get into the notion in campaign finance right now about uh, when one side is building up the GOP and, and dark money, uh, the other can't just unilaterally disarm. It ultimately turns into a tit-for-tat spiral of militarization. A diffusing an arms race is difficult and nearly always involves both parties to buy in. Looking at disputes in partisan politics or beyond, what lessons do you see about how these situations get resolved and how can we actually apply them to find a genuine solution to campaign finance and dark money. You know, it's not going to be easy because um, before there was all this dark money in politics and people were concerned about uh, soft money um, or um, just regular campaign contribution limits, you could get good bipartisan work done in this space. And in fact, the most famous and significant recent bill was the McCain-Feingold bipartisan campaign finance legislation that my friend John McCain and Russ Feingold did in the uh, Senate. Um, The problem with the dark money is that once it is in, primary goal becomes to protect itself. Because if you are a big special interest operating behind a dark money organization, your prime directive is to protect that dark money at all costs because that's the tool for doing all the other bad stuff that you want to do. But the other bad stuff you want to do is only possible if you can hide your identity and continue to spend unlimited anonymous money. So it's the evil that makes all other evils possible, and it means that it's the thing that they'll defend uh, to the last battle. And the result has been impossible to get Republican support on um, reasonable campaign finance reform, like disclosure, (laughs) like transparency. Yeah, those are those are two uh, big things. I, I was wondering, 
So does this transition, like you just mentioned, all the other bad things that the dark money is doing, and it presumably comes from wealthy individuals at the top of, you know, pretty prosperous companies, does dark money in itself make it impossible to create strong and lasting tech regulation when you have these companies like Google and Facebook, Amazon, Microsoft, just worth mind-boggling amounts of money, and many would say are more powerful in themselves than some other countries around the globe. Is it impossible now to regulate big tech due to dark money in the way they may we? I don't think it's impossible yet. Um, <clears throat> you know, learning how to wield dark money and setting up the apparatus for deploying it is a skill set. And some industries, most prominently the fossil fuel industry, have polished that skill set over years and developed a very robust armada of front groups to operate through, um, which I describe as being like piano keys. They can choose which chords to play on the piano of all of their uh, false front organizations. Um, and I don't think that the tech industry is as mature yet, but you can learn awful fast. And I think they could get to a situation where they're just as hard to police politically as it has been difficult to get the fossil fuel industry out of the way to do anything about climate change. And to, to illustrate that point, you know, when I got to the Senate, I was sworn in in January of 2007. And in the next 2007, 2008 and 2009, those next three years, there were bipartisan climate bills all over the Senate. Um, and John McCain was the presidential candidate, Republican, who ran on a really good climate platform. In January of 2010, that all completely stopped dead because Citizens United came down in January of 2010 and unlimited money was made possible and unlimited anonymous money immediately appeared and the Republican Party was basically shut down. The word went out, there will be no more bipartisanship on climate. Um, the, our donors insist and they will give us unlimited money if we you know, do what they want on on this issue. And so bipartisanship ended right then and there. Um, I don't think that the tech industry is quite capable of that yet. But when an industry does have the mature skill set and the deployed array of front groups that are necessary to be an effective uh, dark money hooligan, um, you can do big things like stop climate legislation for a decade. And I'm sure that the tech industry noticed, and I'm sure there are people within the industry trying to figure out how you uh, learn those skills and either claim or develop the operative organizations. Yeah, I think that that's a really salient point that I never really thought of. You need to take the time to deploy the money in a way that you have an organization which is set up throughout uh, you know, the sector, the country, what have you. So it's not just having a lot of money, it's knowing how to use it. So I, I, I do appreciate that. And I want to switch to another big event back, you know, 08, 09, 2010, which was redistricting, as it's somewhat of another type of arms race. In some states controlled by Democrats, redistricting decisions were deferred to nonpartisan commissions. Democrats are now expected to lose, quote unquote, safe seats in some of these states. I'm thinking, for example, uh, California is one of them. Is this an example of unilateral disarmament? Should Democrats in these states adopt a more aggressive approach to redistricting and maybe take away these independent commissions to be able to keep up with the GOP? You know, um, it may be that that's the only way um, not to get rolled in the um, gerrymandering arms race. But it's really 
a tragic false choice to have to go there because, you know, under the very same logic of one person, one vote, uh, the idea that an entire state's congressional map can be manipulated to take the popular vote and create an unrepresentative congressional delegation um, should have been an easy call. And for the district courts, the federal district courts that were presented with these lawsuits, it was an easy call. It was easy to identify when bulk gerrymandering had been done in improper ways. And it was easy to solve. Um, And courts, one after another, came up with solutions and appellate courts upheld them. And it was only when it got to the Supreme Court, which is very, very much in tow to big donors, um, that the court said this was not justiciable. Well, of course it was justiciable. Every court below had justiciated, if that's the word. They had adjudicated these cases, and they'd done it in a fairly simple, standard, straightforward way. And so um, what what I'd really like to see is the court reconsider the error of its decision in the gerrymandering case, but instead they basically turned the green light to as much mischievous gerrymandering as the Republicans could come up with. And they launched something called Red Map, which was the scheme to gerrymander the key swing states. And, you know, Pennsylvania, Ohio, North Carolina, you got, um, you know, basically a tied state, small Democratic win maybe. Um, And out of a tied state would come a delegation that was 13 Republicans and five Democrats. Uh, So they really played, you got to hand it to the Republicans. They planned ahead. Uh, They bet that the court would give them this opening and the court did. And they controlled Congress in that year. I think it was 2014, maybe it was 2016. I've lost. They lost uh, the popular vote in the House by a million votes and yet won the house by 30 seats and you can count that you know chalk that up to gerrymandering yeah and i want to dig into this a a little bit further because you're obviously a judicial expert you're well respected on dark money which we just spoke about you're well respected on gerrymandering you've been at the forefront of charges to create the reforms that you've just kind of outlined I'm wondering, though, from your perspective, really two questions wrapped into one here. How important is gerrymandering and campaign finance to the Biden administration? And how important is it to the Senate caucus? Not somebody like yourself, who is obviously very passionate about it, but I'm thinking maybe more moderate senators like uh, Senator Manchin, Cinema, or just other moderates that we don't have to name anybody. Yeah, um, well, I think... One way to look at it in the Senate is to look at um, the original voting rights bill that we drafted. Um, And Senator Manchin and some others expressed concerns about the bill and not being willing to support it as it was written. And they sat down and negotiated um, a new bill that all 50 Democrats support that includes key voting rights reforms and importantly includes the same provision that we had before the disclose act to put an end to dark money. So there's actually quite a lot of agreement where that agreement founders is on how do you get that passed around a filibuster because the Republicans are obviously going to filibuster because Mitch will protect dark money at all costs because it's the number one goal of dark money to protect dark money. So um, that's the battle. And we're trying to work our way through that thorny thicket and find a way that the caucus can agree to allow this to proceed without Republican obstruction, but perhaps without getting rid of the filibuster, find another alternative. And those negotiations are ongoing and very lively and, and, uh, I hope we'll come to a resolution. On the Biden side, um, the administration has not been as energized about this as I would like. Um, I actually did a little 
search of the White House Communications Office database and looked at all the transcripts of presidential statements and remarks. And the President of the United States and the Vice President of the United States have each used the phrase dark money only one time in the entire administration. Um, as opposed to, you know, going into the Judiciary Committee where the ranking member, Senator Grassley, talks about Democrats as the dark money party, you know, six or seven times in an opening statement. So uh, the Republicans who are the dark money party have actually been much more aggressive about trying to paint us with that than we have uh, much more factually been able to paint them. And part of it's just plain lack of effort. We haven't been trying. That's an astounding fact. One one time each. Um, wow. I, I thought I maybe just wasn't following close enough. Um, so I want to get really yeah. into your Ballywick here, Senator, uh, judiciary, not just the Supreme Court, but, but let's start out um, with the federal uh, appointments. An enormous number of judicial vacancies were filled during Trump's presidency. He uh, nominated and confirmed an astounding 226 in just one term. How do you envision you have a hand in this? How will you uh, how will the Biden presidency compare to this recent record of judicial confirmations? Uh, we're basically on a similar right now. Um, what the Republicans did in the Senate to speed Trump appointees through onto the bench has left a process that is much more rapid um, than beforehand. Um, they broke an enormous number of Senate rules and norms and procedures um, on their way to um, packing the courts with extremist Federalist Society approved, in fact, Federalist Society chosen uh, judges. And uh, unfortunately for them, that wreckage remains. And so the same kind of fast lane exists for us. And with the vice, former vice president, now president, having been the uh, chair of the Senate Judiciary Committee, you know, he knows his way around getting judges done. And so we're basically kind of stride for stride with the uh, Trump administration. We just haven't had to break things to get there because the Republicans broke it all themselves to get Trump judges on. <laughs> Another thing that the Republicans broke, I believe, five times center. I do not want to bore the audience. I'm kind of nerdy. Um, is the blue slip process for people in the audience and Senator? Oh, yeah. cor correct me if I'm wrong. It's where a yeah. nomination to a, a federal judiciary court for the state a senator is in needs to get approval from, I believe, at least one of those senators in that state. And the Republicans unprecedentedly broke this five times. So if you're not getting approvals from those red state senators, uh, should should uh, the Democrats, you know, not unilaterally disarm and break this process as well? Um, usually you require the so-called blue slip, which is an actual sheet of paper. Uh, if you're the chairman of the Judiciary Committee to hold a hearing on a judge uh, from both of the home state senators. Um, Chairman Graham protected the blue slip for the district courts. And so we actually got a very good district judge through in Rhode Island during the Trump years. Um, but they blew up the blue slip for the circuit court judges, the courts of appeals, which make more policy and have more clout and therefore were more desirable captures for Mitch McConnell and his donors. So they basically blew through all the Democratic blue slips, refused to honor them, and stuffed whoever they wanted onto those circuit courts. And by doing so, in my view, they have waived any right to assert a blue slip themselves now. And um, I think we should and do proceed um, with circuit court nominees, irrespective of the blue slip tradition with regard to our Republican colleagues, because you can't be in a situation in which 
when Democrats are in charge, we give the Republicans the power of the blue slip. But as soon as they're in charge, they kneecap us and put judges through against the will of their colleagues. So they've created this situation and um, they now have to, uh, you know, eat the meal they set. Uh, I got to ask you, as an institutionalist, somebody striving to hold up our um, form of government, how does this feel to be kind of backed into a corner and have to chip away the norms that have kept this thing on the track for however long? Well, to me, you know, it's a little bit like um, if you're in the jungle and you hear certain noises and something thrashing about, if you know your way around the jungle, you can probably draw a pretty safe conclusion that that's a wildebeest or a warthog or an elephant or whatever it is. Um, and I've been around long enough that what this is to me is a very powerful signal of how important getting dark money chosen judges onto the courts was um, because it is really, really strange for the United States Senate to give up a prerogative of United States senators. That is usually not the way things go. We defend our prerogatives. And, you know, Senator Reid and I are working with the White House on a First Circuit nominee right now. And we're very proud of the work we did to get Judge Rosary Thompson onto the First Circuit. That's the Rhode Island position on the First Circuit. And we take it very, very seriously. We would never willingly give it up. But the Republicans willingly threw out blue slips, knowing perfectly well that one day this would come back against them because somebody was so desperate to get those seats filled that they could put enough pressure on Republican senators to sacrifice their own Senate prerogative. And that, to me, is a real sign of something weird out in the jungle. And it's a very, very strong signal of the power of this dark money operation that has been packing the courts with the judges they chose. And it's for the audience. I mean, our system was created to be kind of a tripod of balances and uh, checks and balances. And each part of that tripod was going to be striving to get as much power as they could. So when one part of it starts ceding power voluntarily, that is extremely bizarre and troublesome. So, Senator, I have just two quick questions for you. Then we'll go to the audience uh, for their questions. Um, because of the experience with Justice Ginsburg, there's been public pressure for Justice Breyer to retire. Would you like to see Justice Breyer retire so we don't see a 7-2 court? And is there a consensus among your Democratic colleagues in the Senate on what should or should not be? I think, you know, having lived through the Ginsburg experience, it's obvious to everyone, and I hope to him also, what a risk Justice Breyer is taking by not retiring. I have not called on him to retire, mostly because I don't think that would have any effect if I were close to him or thought it would have any effect. Then, you know, that is a conversation I'd probably have with him, but I don't think it would have that effect and it may even get his back up. Um, so I have left that alone, but, you know, everybody knows exactly what the situation is. And um, it's not just the Ginsburg situation. It's also the Kennedy situation with Justice Kennedy stepping down uh, to make sure that Trump and the donors behind Trump got to choose who took his seat. So you have these two side by side. It's a pretty obvious comparison. And um, I hope that good sense prevails. Let's just say that. Uh, yeah, you and me both. So my last question here is the one that I've been most keenly interested in. It, it goes to the threat that the uh, Trump movement at the state and local level is creating. During the last presidential election, we saw how Republicans might use their state legislatures 
to ignore the expressed will of their voters. Since then, we've seen new laws where officials involved in certification have been cut out of the process and replaced with partisans. Uh, Routes have been created to send different slates of electors from the ones chosen by the statewide popular vote. So I have two questions for you here. Is this a realistic fear of different slates being sent to Congress in, you know, the near future? And is there anything that you and your colleagues in the Senate and uh, House can do to prevent this type of just (laughs) a bordering on authoritarianism, but legally uh, from coming to fruition? Yeah, in which the uh, dominant party in the legislature gets to ignore the popular vote and send its own slate of candidates that um, didn't win. Yeah, (laughs) Um, yeah, that's not exactly the American way. And um, the inability to lose graciously is a um, sign of the power behind the party, that the the donors and the people who are pushing this party are simply, you know, lust crazed for the power that they can have and are willing to smash through all sorts of norms and laws and principles and traditions in that quest for power. Uh, And it is frightening. And back to our discussion about courts, one of the things you've seen has been rule of law stopping this from happening, whether it was secretaries of state that followed the law and did their duty, or courts that threw preposterous claims out, and in fact, sanctioned lawyers for bringing false claims into the courtroom and wasting everybody's time and um, corrupting the conversation around the elections. Um, And then we've seen the courts come through for us again in other lies, you know, like um, the young DNC staffer who was murdered in Washington and um, right wing radio decided that, you know, Hillary Clinton had done it and, you know, created immense pain for the family by making the murder of their son this political football to kick around and have fun with. And the family got a judgment for that. Dominion has got this enormous lawsuit about the lies that were told about its machines. So over and over again, we go back to the courts to try to straighten out the lies and the toxicity in our politics. And the danger is that you get enough of these bogus Trump-style judges in, and pretty soon the courts are no longer performing that regulating function. and then things go badly, badly downhill. Yeah, that is the concern. And just uh, I'm now a Democrat senator. I was actually in the RNC in D.C. during that Seth Rich stuff. And even uh, some ardent Trump supporters in the RNC were just bewildered at what these sickos on the right were putting this poor family. Yeah. It's, it's the Sandy Hook anniversary right now. And there were also people on in right wing media accusing the parents whose little children were murdered in that elementary school of cooking the whole thing up, of being parties to a fraud, that it was a fake. And again, courts came in and rendered judgments against people for lying about that and causing harm to those parents. And thank God for courts that were able to do that, because in the court of public opinion, you can put that crap all over Fox News and nobody, you know, nobody really calls you out on it. And to make it even. (laughs) No, but except for courts, courts are are the check. Even Fox News has had to adjust its programming and deal with uh, the threat of litigation over lies. Yeah. And just to put a fine point on that, Senator Tucker Carlson recently praised Alex Jones, the guy who lost those suits it's being a great journalist so just on this anniversary we should all take that into note unbelievable Uh, it's it's ridiculous okay let's let's go to some audience members we're going to go to ab and then greg please be short with the question so ab over uh thank you justin thank you for having me hello peter john jeff and thank you senator for your time um 
So, Senator, um, with uh, respect to the uh, abortion laws that are being challenged in the Supreme Court and the upcoming um, uh, decision uh, next year, uh, which will have a, a great uh, effect, uh, which many speculate will be the gutting of uh, Roe versus Wade. Um, there's been talk that the Supreme Court um, is now entering what it what would be considered a second uh, Lochner era, or even you know the, the the presence of judicial activism on its part. Um, what can theoretically under the uh, the um, structure of the American checks and balances uh, democracy, what can be done or what and what should be done if uh, judicial activism is suspected um, and, and so blatant to the American people? If the court is construing statutes, um, we can always go back and correct the court's opinion by correcting the statute. If the court is construing the Constitution, that gets complicated because it's no easy thing to amend the Constitution. Um, so I think it's really important to focus on some of the court processes to try to clean up what's happening over there. And there are a few things that I'm pushing quite hard for. Uh, one is that the people who come into court as friends of the court, amici curiae, they're people who come in and file a brief, even if they're not parties to the case, because they want to say something to the court about the case. And what's happened is that a lot of groups that don't exist in reality, except as a screen for other folks, um, are filing briefs without revealing who funded them. And we found funding groups that are coordinating orchestrated flotillas of multiple amici all coming in and nobody tells the parties, nobody tells the court. The whole thing would flunk the test of lobbying reporting in the Senate and the court should actually have a higher standard, but they've let them get away with it. So that's an easy one to fix. The other one that is a little bit more peculiar to me is this question of Supreme Court fact finding. In theory, an appellate court shouldn't find any facts. The facts are found at the trial level, and a record of the facts at the trial level are, is developed, and the court can review that and can decide if something is so wrong that it should go back to have the facts reviewed. But this Supreme Court, or at least the Republican majority on it, has been making up its own facts in very important cases and making up facts that became the hinge point upon which the decision swung. These weren't just casual observations. These were facts that had to be found that way in order to allow the decision to result in the outcome that it did. And those facts weren't factual. They weren't real. And People at the time could take a look at what they had said and say, well, that's not true. But then after the decision, events transpired to actually prove beyond doubt that what they said was false. And yet those decisions still float out there, even though they're based on a false factual premise. And I think there is an issue that it's well within um, Congress and the executive branches authority to call a foul on with the court. If it is played by the rules and if it follows, you know, the norms of appellate decision-making and it stays within proper factual, uh, the proper factual record, then, you know, all the usual separation of powers protections remain germane. But if the judges are just making stuff up and then basing decisions on stuff that they made up, that we can prove isn't true and they don't go back and fix it. That's a very different situation. And I think in those situations, we need to start thinking about whether as a Congress or as an executive branch, um, we should be giving full faith and credit, give full, you know, deference to those Supreme court decisions. The Supreme court doesn't get to make up facts. Uh, facts are stubborn things and the real ones come out and, um, 
So there are areas like that, I think, where we can do a lot of, of uh, cleaning up. But um, unfortunately, it is a real mess right now. And the court is busily eroding its credibility as it uh, renders decision after decision after decision favoring big Republican donor interests. Thank you for that, Ab. We will go to uh, Greg Sattel and then Dr. Dana Robb. Greg, over. Thanks, Justin, and, and thanks for joining us, Senator. Uh, I'd like to build on, on Justin's question. You made the point that certain industries have, have gotten very sophisticated about how they move money around. But isn't it true that these days you, you actually don't have to be that sophisticated? I mean, almost anybody with any knowledge of, of basic offshore structures could figure out how you can set up a proxy and a South Dakota trust and a Delaware LLC and a 5013, you know, and, and, and just repeat the process however many times, whether you're Peter Thiel or whether you're a, a, a foreign power. But um, yeah. isn't a bigger problem as well that just the way um, we we haven't enforced laws in, in many in many cases, whether it's bank laws, antitrust laws, um, we saw a great example with FARA finally being used. So my question is this. If you uh, were asked to consult for Merrick Garland, for Attorney General Merrick Garland, which particular uh, bullets would you be putting in the, into the gun and, and where would you be aiming those uh, figurative guns? Which, which laws do you think or which enforcement powers do you think are being underused that could make an impact? Well, one thing that I've um, recommended publicly, not just to Merrick Garland, but to previous administrations, is to look at the um, lies and denial around climate change. Um, there was a case against tobacco, started under the Clinton administration, concluded under the Bush administration won by the Department of Justice in a rout with a uh, extremely powerful uh, decision uh, by the U.S. District Court upheld by the D.C. Circuit Court. And that decision provides a really good template for how you stop an industry from lying. Um, it was a civil case brought under the racketeering statute to get an injunction against the tobacco industry to stop lying about the health effects of tobacco. And you could do the exact same thing right now. And in the course of discovery, as you looked into that, you'd be able to look through the whole scheme of phony front groups that the fossil fuel industry stood up and get that story on the record and uh, factually before the public in a proper way. And I think that would be a very uh, good thing to do. The other thing that I've, I've uh, flagged before has been um, dark monies are set up under the Internal Revenue Code. Uh, 501c3s and 501c4s usually work together. That's the modern state of the art. Twin a 501c3 with a 501c4. The 501c4 does your politics. The 501c3 makes it tax deductible. And um, you go into operation and you can hide your donors. But in a lot of the filings that allow these groups to get 501c3, 501c4 status, it asks them, what are you going to do in politics? And usually they say under oath, nothing. And then you'll see the same group go and file statements with election commissions that, oh, we spent you know, $17 million on political ads this year. Hard to see how both of those statements can be true. And there's never been a serious inquiry under the false statements law, 18 U.S.C. 1001, to go back and look at, was this actually true? How do you say none and $17 million and have both answers be true? Uh, so that would be another uh, good area to, to look at. And, you know, this uses the investigative powers of the department, which I think courts usually respect, even though they have not been as respectful recently of the investigative powers of Congress. Thank you very much, uh, Senator. We'll go to one last question uh, from Andy over in 
the UK at Oxford. Um, and then we'll ask the senator for his final thoughts. Andy, over to you. Thank you, Justin. And thank you so much for joining us today, Senator. Really great to hear from you. Uh, my question comes out of great. Oxford, huh? That's pretty, pretty nice. It's, it's, it's quite a bit cold, but, but otherwise not too bad. Thanks. A bit of COVID as well. It's not great. Um, but indeed, my question uh, comes out of great respect for American democracy, but at the same time is directed at its very heart. In recent decades, we've seen a father and then his son as president. We've had a husband and then very, very nearly his wife be president. We've seen pretty astonishing nepotism from the previous president, which is never, ever a good sign of a healthy system with functioning checks and balances against abuses of power. Here in the UK, for example, we haven't had prime ministers from the same family within the last hundred years. So, Senator, without getting yourself in hot water, to what extent do you think a few dynasties do overly dominate American democracy in a way that perhaps does not currently feature in some other modern democracies around the world? You know, it's an interesting question, and we, and I've got off to an interesting start because um, we had the Adams as father and son as president one after the other uh, quite early on. Um, Washington and Jefferson did not have declared sons who could have taken on, you know, the family tradition and run for office. So it was the Adamses. Madison, I'm trying to remember if he had children um, who could have. But in any event, we, we started off with um, the Adams family. And uh, I don't think it's a great sign of robust democracy. On the other hand, I think there's a lot of this that has to do with both brand and machine. Um, I think once a family name has a brand associated with it, um, a son or a daughter who's interested in politics has an advantage over others, and they've got the network uh, of their parent to tap into. And so they do have a big advantage, um, but that's an advantage that exists sort of independent of um, any, you know, it, it just, that would exist for, for anybody. The ability to deliver a, a political network rapidly and have people know you would be willing to take your calls and all that kind of stuff is, is um, just a human characteristic. And of course, branding is now a very big deal in politics and having your image and, you know. So I, th I think that I would characterize the family dynastic, uh, as you described it, um, instances as more the advantage that you get from branding and from network, from association with somebody who's already uh, fully you know, developed uh, presidential level political figure. Not a great thing, but I don't think it's dynastic in quite that sense. Right. We still have a separate transition of power and voters will and all of the, the good things. Well, at least for now, we have those. Um, so, Senator, I wanted to thank you again from the bottom of our hearts for coming and speaking. I wanted to ask you, though, do you have any lasting thoughts that you want to leave this audience uh, town hall kind of thing with? It could be on democracy, the judiciary, your work in the Senate, or really anything. It could be positive, negative, or somewhere in between. I would close um, with a comment about the importance of transparency in politics. Um, we all as citizens are supposed to make judgments about the political play going on around us and determine how we want to participate and who we want to support or oppose based on information about that political play going on around us. And when we allow players to enter the political stage masked, so you don't know who's really behind them. That 
harm and even an insult to the role of a citizen in this country. The idea that you as a citizen aren't entitled to know who is speaking through that group is one that I think is profoundly antithetical to democracy. And the court, unfortunately, has led us in a terrible place on all of this, going very much contrary to earlier decisions. One of the callers um, mentioned the Lochner era. They are kind of engaged in political Lochner uh, right now. And it's doing, I think, real harm to our democracy. And we overlook, you know, the duty of a citizen. They treat us as if we were just a nation of couch potatoes, all sitting on our couch, all being fed information through the TV and through the laptop. And whoever wants to put the money up to send the information to us, that's fine. And if you don't reveal who you are, that's fine. You know, it'll all sort of sort itself out. But there's a more robust view of what an American citizen should be. And that is an informed citizen. And that goes all the way back to the founding and to Madison. Um, and I think we've lost connection, at least the court, the majority on the court has lost connection with that very, very simple truth, which you find expressed by the founders, which you find expressed by past presidents, which you find expressed by courts over and over and up to the present day. And against all of that, they've set up a new view of um, political life that is profoundly disabling to the key participants in political life, the American citizens. That, I think, is something worth focusing on and correcting. That's all we have for you today. But again, huge thanks to Senator Whitehouse for coming out, to our audience for their questions, and to you for being here. If you like or dislike what you hear, if you want to find out how to join us live almost every day of the week, maybe ask one of our upcoming guests a question or hear past episodes, please visit our website, pm101.live or pm101.club. They both work and we'll get you to the same place where you can find all that and more. This has been Politics and Media 101, produced in partnership with Clubhouse. I'm Jeff Browning. On behalf of Justin Higgins, our co-founder and our team, thank you very much for being here. We hope to see you and hear from you soon.